If you've been following the podcast since episode one, you're probably starting to wonder how Donna Richmond and Jennifer R. Moore fit into the BPD investigation of the Snelling and BR cases. Jennifer's disappearance occurred at the height of the ransackings, about six blocks from Beth Snelling's house, and she was a 15-year-old, blonde, Mount Whitney student. She was in the ransackers' preferred target group and was last seen in the ransackers' active zone. So, VPD looked into her case as part of the task force investigation, right? Of course not. They didn't go back and investigate her disappearance. They didn't ask for a homicide case file from TCSO. They didn't think about Jennifer at all. Although it seems impossible to us, looking at Jennifer's case never occurred to the VPD investigators at the time. In fact, as far as we can tell, it was never investigated by any of the VPD cold case investigators looking at the Snelling case in all of the years between 1974 and 2017. Sergeant Vaughn said there was no real communication between VPD and TCSO in those days, and they did not routinely work cases together or share information. Once Jennifer's body was found near Exeter, it's as if the missing person case in Vesalia never existed. She just dropped into a jurisdictional crack. Well, you're thinking, obviously, TCSO would have heard about the ransackings, and the Snelling murder, and the kidnapping attempt on Beth, and the stalking of Jane Smith, and McGowan's near miss with death. Certainly, TCSO would have reached out about Jennifer's unsolved homicide to see if there was any connection. Nope. According to Sergeant Vaughn, there was no communication or discussion with TCSO about Jennifer's case. It appears that TCSO got stuck on a rumor about who killed Jennifer, and they never really moved beyond the POIs identified by the teen gossip mill. Much like Donna's case, there is evidence of tunnel vision, confirmation bias, and anchor traps in TCSO's investigation of Jennifer's case. To begin, all of the initial TCSO statements regarding Jennifer's death alluded to some kind of accidental drowning rather than a kidnapping and homicide. Take a look at the interactive map links we have on our website and SoundCloud to see where Jennifer's body was found. It is 12 miles from where Jennifer, who was on foot, was last seen. TCSO believed that she had voluntarily gone to that location and in the pitch black, freezing cold, had accidentally drowned while swimming in a concrete-lined irrigation canal, naked, with her hands bound with her bra. What? Yes, TCSO said it was an accident. Why would they think anything other than Jennifer had been kidnapped and murdered? Because they heard gossip that she was a party girl and apparently was having a wild party in the Orange Grove on that November night. We have several problems with this rumor. The first being that as far as we can tell, the rumor may not have even been about Jennifer, but rather her 18-year-old sister. The second is this appears to be a rumor based on hearsay and third-hand information. That is, someone heard that it happened and repeated it to TCSO. This lead is not based on an eyewitness who saw Jennifer that night. TCSO came to believe that Jennifer was the type of girl that liked to do crazy party stuff. So, she must have been mixed up in a crazy Orange Grove party on the night of her death. Jennifer's case has been stuck in this narrative for over 40 years. This theory ran into a few hitches, since someone obviously had to give Jennifer a ride to the Grove, and they were unable to find her jacket, pants, shoes, underwear, and handmade necklace. They sent divers into the canal and worked the banks downstream, but the items were never found. So Jennifer was not partying alone, and probably didn't tie her own hands with her bra. 
TCSO turned back to the teen rumor mill for some names of likely party guys. They then came up with the theory that Jennifer willingly took a ride out to Exeter to party with three older guys and something, quote, got out of hand and Jennifer ended up dead. There were several problems with this theory on the surface. Jennifer had no drugs or alcohol in her system, so she wasn't doing any partying. The friend who was supposed to go to the game with her and the friends they were supposed to meet for a ride all said she was excited to attend the game and not meeting any guys. Jennifer was last seen just a block or two from where her friends were waiting. Why would she bother to make the plans for a ride to the game and walk two miles if the guys could have just picked her up? Also, perhaps the most obvious question, what would make TCSO believe that a 15-year-old schoolgirl, on her way to a big football game, would willingly go alone to a totally secluded location where she had never been with three guys? That's something that a girl would only do if she wanted to be raped and murdered, which seems to be TCSO's implication in their handling of Jennifer's case. She did something to bring it on herself. They found no evidence tying the guys to the scene or to Jennifer's body. There was no proof that Jennifer was in any of their vehicles. No one reported seeing Jennifer get in a vehicle with them or riding out to Exeter or partying in the Grove. There was no proof that the guys were in the Grove that night or anywhere out near Exeter. They were not seen in the area and their fingerprints were not found at the scene. The only thing connecting them to Jennifer, the Grove location, or the murder was gossip. They couldn't make a case against any of the guys, not even enough to arrest them, let alone prosecute. Yet for 40 years, whenever anyone inquired about the case, TCSO would say it was closed, and even tell people the name of the two guys who did it. They stopped running Jennifer's case in the Secret Witness and Crime Stopper programs, and after 1978, there was no further mention of Jennifer R. Moore or her case in any Tulare County newspaper. TCSO closed the case. In August 2016, TCSO launched a new cold case unit with a big press release and multiple local news stories. They covered all of the cold case homicides and asked for the public's help in solving the cases. Jennifer's case was not included. They seemed stuck in their original theory and have not made a renewed public plea for information in her case. We're hoping that someone listening to this episode might know something about Jennifer's case, maybe something that they never realized was important. The clothes that Jennifer was wearing that have never been found included a three-quarter length blue ski-type jacket, blue Levi's, green suede shoes, and a necklace consisting of brown and orange beads with a small bell. The beads and bell were attached to a piece of leather forming the necklace. This is from the Visalia Times Delta, October 20th, 1976. Secret Witness Increases Crime Information Rewards Directors of Tulare County's Secret Witness Program have increased the rewards offered for solutions on two unsolved crimes in Tulare County. A $4,000 reward is now offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person who killed Claude Snelling, College of the Sequoia's journalism professor, on September 11, 1975. A total of $1,500 will be offered for information solving the murder of Jennifer Lynn Armour, 15, of Visalia, in November 1974. The two cases are now the only ones for which rewards are being offered. Sergeant Richard McGowan, the county sheriff's officer who administers the program, said many calls have been received concerning the two murder cases 
since the secret witness program began several months ago. All have been or are being investigated, he said. So, yes, TCSO officer Richard McGowan is the brother of VPD agent Bill McGowan. So he was well acquainted with the VR and his brother's shooting incident. It's amazing reading this story and realizing that the Snelling case and Jennifer's murder were never connected or investigated together. But they weren't. So, Jennifer's case was never investigated in relation to the Snelling murder and VR. But what about Donna's case? The girls were found about one and a half miles apart, with Jennifer being directly north of the Neal Ranch where Donna was killed. To put that in perspective, Donna was found 3.3 miles away from her bike. Jennifer had walked two miles from home before she disappeared. Donna had ridden 10 miles on her bike and had another 4.3 to get home on her last day. Jennifer was found 13 miles from where she was last seen. Donna's underpants were 6.8 miles away from the Neal Ranch. The distances between things in that area are huge. Donna and Jennifer were maybe two to three minutes apart by car. This argument from TCSO is particularly frustrating in light of their ridiculous timeline in Donna's case. Remember, they said Donna was kidnapped, driven over three miles to the Neal Ranch, killed, hidden, and her clothes scattered a distance of almost 10 miles in a max total of 30 minutes. They also tried to connect the Brumley and Moscoro incidents, which occurred nine miles apart. However, if you ask them about Jennifer and Donna's cases being linked, that one and a half miles is proof that it can't be the same killer. When we heard this assertion, we immediately wondered, how many young high school girls did they have murdered between Exeter and Woodlake back in the 70s? The answer is two. And between 1900 and 2017, it's still two. This is not the teen girl murder capital of California, or even Tulare County. These are the only two similar homicides in that area ever. The obvious answer to all of this is that they couldn't look at the cases together because Oscar was working in Las Vegas when Jennifer was killed. When TCSO got proof of Oscar's alibi in Donna's case and all of the lab tests came back negative, it would have been a good time to go back and see if there was a common clue in Jennifer and Donna's cases, even quietly behind the scenes while they kept Oscar in custody, but they didn't. The two cases have never been worked together to look for commonalities. Was there anyone who worked at the two orange groves where the girls were killed and maybe also in one of the groves near Donna's house? Were the girls in any common activities like church camp, 4-H, or Future Farmers of America? Did Donna and Jennifer share any friends or related family members? Did they look at people who might have had a reason to be familiar with the canal in that area and regularly use the canal access roads? We could go on and on with possibilities here. Employee records are gone, witnesses have died, and memories faded. There is no way to go back and recreate the investigation that could have been in 1975. We haven't seen Jennifer's autopsy report, so we can't speak to any similarities in the girl's injuries. However, both girls were killed by someone who felt extremely comfortable in the orange groves and driving along the canal. He likely had some knowledge of the grove working schedules and chose groves that did not have ranch houses. They were both remarkably isolated. The girls were 14 and 15 years old, blonde with long hair parted in the middle. They both disappeared while traveling alone on Friday evenings and running late. 
They were each transported to an orange grove near the canal in a vehicle and had their pants, shoes, and underpants taken from the scene. We've covered Jennifer's possible connections to the ransacker, but what about Donna's? Her murder occurred very close in time to the McGowan shooting and only a week after the first composite and physical description ran in the Visalia Times Delta. At this point, the ransacker was wanted for murder, kidnapping, and attempted murder of a police officer. This was a death penalty case. It's remarkable that the Snelling murder didn't slow him down at all, or even make him change his peeping route or break-in ammo. He continued on as if nothing had happened, even though in reality the entire VPD was actively trying to catch him. This is especially confounding since the newspaper made it clear from the very first day that police were looking at the ransacker. This is the Visalia Times Delta, September 11, 1975. Deputy Chief Dean Marshall confirmed that his office is aware of a rash of burglaries in the same general area in the last 10 months. Police are investigating the possibility that the burglar, which the department's anti-burglary team has dubbed the ransacker, may be a suspect in the slain. Our MO, method of operation, doesn't seem to fit exactly this time, but having the purse and all, we definitely have to investigate the possibility that the same person may be responsible, Marshall said. If anyone has seen something in the area of the murder scene, a car, a prowler, anything, I hope they will call us. Right now we have very little and could use some help. He clearly had grown so overconfident that he believed VPD could not catch him. However, VPD did begin to wonder if they had shaken him when one of the guns stolen by the VR was found in an irrigation ditch about halfway between Visalia and Exeter. On September 19th, a week after the Snelling homicide, a citizen found a Taurus revolver stolen in a ransacking burglary on Mountain Drive on May 24, 1975. The location was just off Avenue 256, near Road 132. You can see this location on both of the interactive maps on our website. This was in a ditch operated by Consolidated People's Ditch Company, and was next to two of Consolidated's large irrigation reservoirs. There were no residences near the ditch, but there was a fertilizer company close by, and VPD checked all of its employees for possible connections to the VR or Snelling cases. This was the first time anything stolen by the VR had been discovered, and Sergeant Vaughn felt it was very significant. This prompted VPD to begin searching all of the ditches out along Avenue 256, and on September 22, 1975, after the water level in the ditches had dropped, they discovered a clear plastic raincoat wrapped around a large screwdriver and some 222 ammunition in another consolidated ditch located on Avenue 256 near Road 164. In this case, there was a nearby residential neighborhood, but VPD did not run a check on the residents. If they had, they would have checked on 25640 Hypericum Road, the home of Oscar Clifton's parents, staked out by TCSO on the night Donna disappeared. VPD never came up with a good working theory on the VR items left in the ditches. They thought maybe he had to drop it quickly for some reason, but that didn't explain the two locations four miles apart. They also wondered if he was stashing it for later use, but running water is not a good place to keep a gun or ammo if you ever want to use them again. The one thing that didn't occur to BPD was that the ransacker may have been trying to frame someone else for the Snelling murder. We don't know who all was on the fertilizer plant's employee list, but we do know that the Hypericum address was the only directory listing for Oscar's family in 1975. That's why TCSO had it staked out. 
If you look at the 122675 map, you'll see that Donna's second shoe was found due north of the raincoat wrap, exactly one avenue, on 264. Donna's first shoe was found two miles east, next to a consolidated ditch, and the underpants were found in a consolidated ditch just northeast of the shoe. TCSO assumed that this was a trail leading to Oscar's house, so they never looked to see who lived or worked near the items, or wondered if they were connected to the VR loot items found in nearby consolidated ditches three months earlier. This raises an interesting question, not only about the trail of Donna's clothing, but also about the item described as a ski cap found in the grove near Donna's body on the Neal Ranch. There is a photo of it on our website, and it was described by TCSO. This is from TCSO Report Johnson, December 26, 1975. Reporting officer, after completing scene, walked approximately 52 rows south and 20 rows west and located a multicolored ski cap with possible hair adhering to it. This was photographed and collected by reporting officer. Completed 1730 hours, 1227.75. Beth Snelling gave two descriptions of the mask her attacker wore. This is VPD Report Gomes, September 11, 1975. Black ski mask with eyes and mouth portion cut out, described as having white stripes and having multicolored zigzag design. This is VPD report McGowan, October 15, 1975. She related he was wearing a ski mask, black in color, with white stripes completely around it, and all she could see was his eyes. You can see from the photo that the item found at Neal Ranch appears to be dark blue with white stripes all around with a zigzag pattern. TCSO took exactly one photo of it, and it's impossible to tell if it has eye or mouth holes. It's certainly long enough to be mask length. The fact that it's described for skiing, as opposed to a work or knit cap, may also point to it being a ski mask. It's interesting to note that in the McGowan shooting, all of the VPD reports refer to the mask worn by the ransacker as a stocking cap even though we have confirmed for certain it was a mask that covered his face. Oscar always referred to this item in Donna's case as a ski mask, and that's how it's referenced in his appellate briefs. Unfortunately, it was destroyed by order of TCSO Sergeant Bird in 1977, so there is no way to confirm that it was a mask. We've asked Brian Johnson, who photographed and collected it, to clarify the issue, but he was not interested in discussing it. We do know that nobody from VPD ever examined it, and it was never shown to Beth Snelling for possible identification. It did have three male-length hairs, two dark and one light blonde. As we mentioned before, although the blonde hair had a root, the lab said they could not develop a DNA profile from it. The mask was found on the Neal Ranch Grove Road that bordered the Frank Kern Canal. It would have been the route the killer used leaving the grove, especially if he was taking Donna's bike down to List. It was in a spot consistent with it being dropped out of the driver's side window. It's possible that this was the beginning of the evidence trail left by the killer. If this was the mask used in the Snelling homicide, was it meant to lead law enforcement to believe that if they caught Donna's killer, it would also be the ransacker? If that was the case, then is it possible that the ransacker was trying to frame Oscar for the entire series of crimes? We admit, that sounds a little crazy on the surface. We're not conspiracy theorists, and we usually think that the most obvious answer is the correct one. However, the most obvious answer in this case is that Oscar is guilty. Why else would his invoice book be found at the scene? We feel like we're back to where we started when we first began looking at this case. 
Innocent people are rarely convicted and sent to prison, but it does happen. Wrongful convictions usually involve tainted witness identifications, bad science evidence testimony, or police misconduct. We feel that there is strong evidence of all three of these being present in Oscar's case. If Oscar did not kill Donna, then someone went out of their way to make it look as though he did. Did this same person attempt to throw suspicion on him by planting the items near his parents' house in September 1975, right after the Snelling murder, but VPD missed the clue? None of the VPD officers were involved in Oscar's 1965 case or knew anything about him, so they weren't looking for something to tie him to their case. Even if VPD had looked at Oscar, it wouldn't have been for long. He had been living and working in Las Vegas during the ransacking and had suffered a terrible knee injury in a car accident. Oscar wore a leg brace and walked with a noticeable limp. He wasn't going to be scaling any fences or running away from the police. If someone tried to frame Oscar for the ransackings, Snelling, McGowan, and Donna, he didn't know about Vegas or Oscar's knee, but he probably knew about the 1965 attempted rape conviction. The real problem here is that if Oscar did not kill Donna, then someone tried to frame him for it, either law enforcement or the real killer. In addition to the mask, there were a few other things in Donna's case that are consistent with the attack on Beth Snelling. One is that both girls appear to have been kicked while on the ground, and both seem to have been attacked by someone left-handed. Beth's assailant threatened to stab her, although she did not remember actually seeing a knife. The girls were also a similar age and physical type with long blonde hair. We don't want to try to get into anyone's head, but it's obvious that the ransacker would have been feeling an enormous amount of frustration and anger after the botched Snelling attack. It appears that he had refocused his attention on Jane Smith, but of course McGowan ruined that as well. Whoever killed Donna did not have a good plan. She was either a victim of random opportunity, or the killer made his plan earlier that day. By this we mean that someone was driving by, saw her, and kidnapped her, or someone saw or talked to her earlier in the day, knew of her plans to visit Don Lee, or followed her up to his house and waited. It's also possible, but less likely, that someone who knew she used the Grove shortcut off list waited for her to ride by on her way home. What is obvious is that the killer did not have a good place to take Donna where he could safely be alone with her for an extended period of time. It was still daylight and the end of the workday in the Grove. It was a risky place to attack her. It would have been clear to the ransacker after reading of the VPD stakeouts and his encounter with McGowan that he was not going to be able to continue stalking his victims in Visalia. Did he take the opportunity to kidnap Donna out of frustration and anger and then attempt to frame Oscar for the entire series to take the police pressure off of himself? One of the most confounding aspects of the McGowan shooting was the fact that the ransacker took off his mask while standing right in front of McGowan with a flashlight on his face. The ransacker had zero concern that he would be recognized and was happy to calmly feign compliance to stall for time. McGowan not only worked at the schools in Visalia, but he made a point after the shooting to review all of the yearbooks and attend school events in an attempt to spot the ransacker. In all of the years between 1975 and McGowan's death in 2005, he never recognized anyone as the ransacker. VPD went door to door in the VR neighborhoods questioning residents and handing out the composite sketch, but came up with nothing. The same with local businesses. They canvassed all of the barbershops and hair studios looking for the person who cut the ransacker's hair, but came up empty. 
BPD conducted an exhaustive search for the source of the ski mask described by Beth Snelling. They checked 17 local businesses, including all camping and sporting gear shops, department stores, drug stores, military surplus outlets, and even the mini-marts and liquor stores. Nobody in Visalia sold that type of ski mask. So, what was the evidence that the VR lived in Visalia? None that we can find. If you look at the VR map, you'll notice that there were four distinct ransacking zones, four completely different neighborhoods. He worked an area about two miles across east to west and about 1.5 miles north to south. The ransacker used Evans Ditch to the south and the ditch along 198 to the north. Ditches, trails, and vacant lots seemed to determine his routes. Two times he was being chased, he immediately got off the sidewalk, cut three yards, and headed for the ditch. The irrigation ditches were his streets, where he felt at home and safe. The ransacker's obsession with Mount Whitney students and First Baptist families also led VPD to think he was local, but none of those investigations led to a suspect. Kids from all over Tulare County attended a centralized First Baptist church camp, and the cheer girls from Mount Whitney attended football, basketball, and baseball games with teams from all of the area schools. 4-H and Future Farmers of America were the same. Kids from around the county regularly attended events together. Also, the ransacker could have had family in Visalia and been acquainted with the neighborhoods and neighbor girls through regular visits with grandparents or cousins. The VR loot and Donna's clothing were both found in consolidated people's irrigation ditches, all easily accessed by siding roads. Donna and Jennifer were both found along the Friant Kern Canal, which feeds consolidated peoples just north of the spot where Jennifer was killed. There are a lot of irrigation ditches and canals involved in these cases, and they lead right back to Exeter. VPD was so sure the ransacker was from Visalia, they never looked at Exeter at all. They didn't check the yearbooks or the schools. They didn't canvas the local businesses or pass around the composite. They didn't even run the composite or ransacker story in the Exeter newspaper. Residents of Exeter who didn't read the Visalia Times Delta had absolutely no information about the Snelling homicide, ransackings, McGowan shooting, or the physical description. The towns are 10 minutes apart, but it might as well have been 100 miles. For police and news purposes, they were two entirely separate worlds. We've always felt that both Jennifer and Donna were killed by someone from the Exeter area, and someone who felt safe and comfortable in the orange groves. It's totally possible that the girls' cases are unrelated, but we feel that there are enough similarities that a connection between them should be investigated. We believe that Oscar's conviction didn't meet any standard of proof, not beyond a reasonable doubt or even by preponderance of the evidence. If the jury had heard all of the evidence in Donna's case, all of the evidence we presented in episodes 1 through 7, they would not have convicted Oscar. If that's true, there are two unsolved murders in Exeter. The person who killed Donna had to be extremely familiar with the area, and all the evidence points to someone who knew where she lived and even that she used the Grove shortcut. This is not an insignificant point. It cannot be stressed enough how unlikely it would be for a complete stranger to sit in that isolated spot and expect a lone girl to walk or ride by. It defies all common sense and logic. Even if someone were specifically waiting for Donna, it's still odd. Mrs. Britton said Donna mentioned that day was the very first time she had ridden along the railroad tracks to reach Carol's house. 
But the section of Grove Road where Donna's bike was found required that she approach from the tracks. If she had ridden past the tracks and down to the next Grove Road off Firebaugh, he would have missed her completely. The tracks were not a usual or known route for Donna, so the location of her bike along that specific little stretch of Grove Road is very telling. It seems likely that whoever either kidnapped her there or dropped her bike to make it look like a kidnapping saw or heard her riding along the railroad tracks that day. We so wish we could go back in time and have VPD investigate Donna's murder. If it were approached like the Snelling case, they would start by talking to all of Donna's friends, not just about her movements that last day, but about her relationships with other students, neighbors, church group, 4-H, future farmers, and the adults in her life. They would have asked her family the same questions and talked to her brother's friends. They would have canvassed every house near her bike and the Neal Ranch and would have talked to every person who lived or worked along her suspected route home. Did anyone see Donna after she left Don Lee's? Did anyone see her being followed or a vehicle entering or exiting the Neal Ranch? VPD also would have completely sealed both crime scenes and called in the state crime lab investigators from Fresno. If anyone from TCSO talked to the workers who were at Neal Ranch on December 26th, they didn't include it in a report or prepare any witness statements. We have no record of who was working there that day or what they may have seen or heard. Donna was found around 1.30 p.m. on Saturday the 27th. The crime scene processing was over at 5.30, and that's when TCSO cleared the scene. Donna's autopsy started at 5.45 p.m. and was finished at 7.35. Oscar was rearrested for homicide, and TCSO's investigation and evidence gathering was finished. We also wish that VPD would have had their medical examiner review Donna's autopsy. People who die from manual strangulation don't crawl away after the killer leaves the scene. Was there specific evidence of Donna's killer being left-handed? Was the left kidney injury likely caused by kicking? Was the blow to her head behind her left ear a kick, a punch, or inflicted by an object? Also, was it clear from the evidence at the scene that Donna was attacked in the grove? There was no evidence of a fight. Donna's footprints in shoes or socks or blood anywhere but directly under her body. Could there have been another undiscovered crime scene? We also wish VPD had gotten involved in Jennifer's homicide. They handled many rumors and gossip in the Snelling case quickly and professionally. This is VPD Report Feldstein, September 15, 1975. Friday, September 12, 1975, 1400 hours. Person contacted Mrs. Johnson, 748 Redwood Drive. Mrs. Johnson stated that her son had advised her that a girl in his Spanish class at Mount Whitney High School was making statements to other students that Beth knew who did it and that he went to Redwood High School. Mrs. Johnson stated that her son did not know the girl's first name, but her last name was Short. A check of the records at Mount Whitney High School indicated that a Mary Short resided on Vassar Drive. Mrs. Johnson indicated that her son made mention of the fact that this girl was stating that she was Beth Snelling's best friend. Saturday, September 13, 1975. Several attempts were made to contact Mary Short at her residence with negative results due to the fact that the family was out of town for the day. Saturday, September 13, 1975, 1800 hours. 
received a telephone call from Mrs. Short stating that they had received a message that I was attempting to contact their daughter. Mrs. Short advised that her daughter was not at home at this time, but would be available for questioning in reference to the statements at approximately 1 p.m. on Sunday, September 14, 1975. Investigation to continue. Sunday, September 14, 1975, 13.15 hours. Person contacted Mary Short, Vassar. Contacted Mary Short at her home, and in the presence of her mother and father, she was questioned as to the statement she made in the Spanish class at Mount Whitney High School, wherein she stated, Beth knows who did it, and he goes to Redwood High School. Mary stated that she did make the statement in several of her classes, but that the statement did not originate with her, and she was only repeating rumors that she had heard on campus. Mary further stated that she knows Beth Snelling upon sight, but that she is not one of her best friends, and only knows her in passing to say hello or some other comments. Mary further stated that she has never been one of the letterette girls at Mount Whitney High School and has not attempted any types of tryouts for any other of the activities involving cheerleaders, flag girls, or letter girls. She further stated that she has never been to the Snelling residence at any time and in fact did not know the location of the residence until informed by several of her classmates. There was also an 18-year-old neighbor of the Snellings who admitted to prowling and was turned into BPD by multiple people who said he was weird. His family reported that he prowled at night and had attempted to molest both of his stepsisters. He repeatedly contacted BPD offering to help on the case. He seemed like a very strong suspect, but BPD carefully investigated and eventually cleared him of involvement with the cases. The reason VPD looked at hundreds of suspects is because they treated every tip and lead seriously and didn't stop until each person was cleared. Jennifer's case could have really benefited from this type of tenacity. One rumor we've heard about the VR is that he had to have been in the military, maybe even in special forces. We have found no evidence to support that idea. The ransacker was a crack shot, but he favored snub-nosed revolvers, which are easily concealed, excellent for quick draw, won't jam, and don't eject spent casings. This suggests more of an obsession with gangsters or Wild West villains than a war veteran. Since we grew up in rural areas in the 70s, we know what it's like to spend hours out in a field target practicing and perfecting your draw method. Also, he stole a lot of shotgun shells, suggesting familiarity with another non-military but popular hunting weapon. The ransacker seemed to have some basic knowledge of tracking and double-back techniques. But both of these are common skills for all hunters and Boy Scouts. In looking through the Tulare County newspapers in the early 70s, there were numerous stories about the skills practiced at the Boy Scout camperees. Troops competed in and received instruction in nature, first aid, Morse code, knot tying, and compass reading. The program will consist of scouting skill in fire building, first aid, obstacle course races, lashing, cooking, compass, and general camping. The patrols were graded on camping skills and seven competitive events, tug of war, lashing, signaling, barricade climbing, compass, and flint and steel fire building. During the weekend, the boys participated in competitive sports and events of archery, pancake flipping, following trail signs over a one-half-mile course, and stalking. Many of the boys hiked to the falls one mile away, and during the night, they took a starlight hike to investigate nearby terrain and complete requirements in locating constellations. The ransacker was seen wearing a military jacket, 
but that actually argues against a military veteran. Why would you wear part of your uniform to go commit burglaries? Every POI we've looked at in Donna's case had several male relatives who were Korean War veterans, and of course Vesalia's army surplus store would have carried a full array of military clothing and gear. Presumably, he also could have just stolen it. This also wasn't a consistent outfit. Beth Snelling described a dark windbreaker with elastic cuffs. The ransacker's use of improvised alarm systems is something that reminded us of hunting and camping trips. We would use fishing line with cans as tripwire alarms to warn of game approaching on the trail, or to protect from bear coming into the camp at night. This was part of normal growing up in rural America in the 70s, especially in a place like Tulare County, which sits at the base of the mountains. Fishing, hunting, camping, and recreation opportunities are right in their backyard. At this point, we would like to see the VR, Snelling, Amour, and Richmond cases all work together, not because we can prove the crimes were all committed by the same person, but because it's possible, and the cases may have some unrecognized commonality that will lead to one or more suspects. The number of potential suspects who lived in Exeter in 1975 is finite, and many of the same families still live in the area. VPD and TCSO would need to work together and share information, and there would need to be a public plea for information. Most people in Exeter are completely unaware of Jennifer's homicide. Although she was found just north of town, the Exeter newspaper only ran one story on her case, and that was almost two months after she was killed. The story asked for information concerning the, quote, circumstances of her death, rather than calling it a kidnapping and homicide. And there was no physical description of Jennifer or her missing clothing and jewelry. Obviously, people in Exeter believe Oscar killed Donna. It seems highly unlikely to happen, but a plea to local residents for any additional information on Donna's last day could point to someone who is connected to Jennifer's case or the ransackings. It's impossible to know what information is out there because the questions have never been asked. There are two other cases possibly related to the ransacker that were not part of the original investigation. The first was an attempted rape. This is from Vasilia Times Delta, October 10, 1974. Rape averted, woman beaten. A rural Vasilia woman averted an attempted rape in her home Wednesday afternoon, but suffered a beating as a result of her resistance. Sheriff's detectives said the woman was accosted in her kitchen by a man armed with a pistol and wearing a ski mask. The victim told officers the man ordered her into the bedroom, but she resisted and was pistol whipped, sustaining severe facial cuts. She fell down and was kicked in the face by the man before he fled, the woman told investigators. Officers said the would-be rapist entered the home through an unlocked kitchen door. This is from the Visalia Times Delta, October 12, 1974. Officers arrest young Visalian. Jimmy McDonald, 18, of Visalia, is in custody at the Tulare County Jail in connection with the attempted rape of a Visalia woman on Wednesday. McDonald was arrested after an investigation by sheriff's detectives. Detectives said a rural Visalia woman reported she was accosted in her kitchen by a man armed with a pistol and wearing a ski mask. The victim told officers the man ordered her in the bedroom, but she resisted and was pistol whipped. This is from Visalia Times Delta, April 24, 1975. A Visalia man charged with the assault and attempted rape of a rural Visalia woman was acquitted late Wednesday by a Superior Court jury. Jimmy McDonald, 19, of Conyers Street, was charged in connection with an October 9, 1974 incident. The victim, a 37-year-old employee of Visalia Unified School District, 
said an armed man wearing a ski mask broke into her residence and tried to rape her. When he failed, he pistol-whipped her, she said. The defendant testified that he was at a Vesalia store at the time the victim said the incident occurred. So this attack occurred on October 9, 1974, and by the 12th, TCSO had already completed their investigation and made an arrest. We're still trying to track down more information on this case from the court. Other than the fact that we've read he was a neighbor, we're not clear what the evidence was that supposedly connected him to the attack. He was acquitted, and it sounds like his attorney did an excellent job presenting his alibi. If this was a botched attack by the ransacker, it would have been between ransackings and about a month before Jennifer disappeared. The other case we'd like to know more about is a 1975 kidnapping and rape in Visalia. This is from the Visalia Times Delta, April 4, 1975. Visalia girl reports rape. A 16-year-old Visalia girl told police last night she was raped by a man who forced her into his car while she walked on Woodland Drive and Walnut Avenue. According to the victim, the man offered her a ride. She refused and was pulled into his car. From there, she was driven to a rural area, assaulted, then dropped off on Chinnawith Road near Harvard Avenue. This occurred five months after Jennifer disappeared, and this girl was forced into a car three blocks off the route Jennifer walked on her way to Kmart. We can find no record of an arrest or prosecution in this case, and it doesn't appear to have been looked at as part of the Snelling investigation. It may be completely unrelated to the ransacker, or there could be a vital clue buried in an old police report. Sergeant Vaughn and current VPD do not believe that the ransacker committed any crimes in Visalia after December 1975. They continued to commit special patrols and ran frequent requests for information in the newspaper, but never became aware of another case that specifically fit the ransacker's unique M.O. In the next episode, we'll address the VPD's theory of where the ransacker went after he stopped hitting in Visalia.